What if you could be doing something smarter with your money that creates income now? If you're wanting to get ahead financially and enjoy greater freedom of choice, if you want a comfortable retirement and you know you'll have more choices if you can do more with your money now, if you've wondered who else is creating ways to make their money work for them and you want actionable ideas with honest pros and cons and no fluff, welcome to the Richer Geek Podcast. We're here helping people find creative ways to build wealth and financial freedom. I'm Mike Stoller, and in this podcast, you'll hear from others who are already doing these things and learn how you can too. Hello, everyone. This is Mike Stoller, your host of the Richer Geek Podcast. As many of you know, I have owned or managed over 1,500 doors from single-family homes, multifamily, and hotels. I've received so many questions about how I transitioned from multifamily to hotels. I've been featured on some of the our nation's largest podcasts. I've spoken at national conferences about hotel investing. How do you do it? What are the differences between multifamily and hotel investing? What about franchises? What did I learn during COVID? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I am excited to announce that I'll be having a hotel investor workshop on May 5th and 6th of 2023. If you're interested in hotel investing, please come join us. You can sign up on our website, therichergeek.com. Go to the bottom of the page and click on training. I'm hoping to see you all there. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Richard Geek. I'm proud to have on this episode Salvatore Bushimi. He... Uh, as the author of three books, he's done a lot in industrial, but we're going to talk about one of his books, Legacy, uh, Investing Legacy. And what it is, is we're, he's going to explain how the 1% invest, what kind of assets, what gives them legitimacy, and what's the difference between them and the rest of us that are trying to <laughs> get uh, to where they're at. How are you doing, Salvatore? Great to see you, Michael. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So give us a little bit of background. I know you're in uh, Goldman Sachs for a little bit. How'd you get into where you're at now? You know, when I um, when I was working on Wall Street, I saw that there was opportunities happening in the distressed real estate, sort of like what we're seeing right now, only this was back in 2005, you know, sooner than that. And I had a, uh, a life event where my father passed away unexpectedly of a heart attack. And I was 24 years old working at Goldman Sachs at the time. And I made a promise to myself that I'd have my own institutional fund before the age of 30. And at 29, I did. Um, I was able to raise successfully $30 million from Park Avenue Investment Manager and then did the same thing again out west where I lived in Las Vegas for a little bit. And we had, um, that was sort of like the ground zero, if you remember, for all the defaults. Uh, in the mortgage market, Irvine and all of that, the real housewives of, you know, Orange County started because of those, you know, very successful at the time realtors and mortgage brokers. You know, today look at it as, you know, it's an entirely different institution. However, um, you learn a lot about businesses when they come apart. And that's really what, you know, we're spending time preparing for, but we've been making a lot of investments into other things, mostly because of the success, success that I've had, but also because I've been able to notify trends working with um, some of the world's wealthiest families 
into what they like to invest into. So how did you get that start? I mean, it's, you know, there's so many people that are on our podcast that are listening that would love to start maybe a syndication or a fund. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. how did you go about, I mean, your first one, boom, you know, that, that much money. Yeah. The first one, well, you have to understand that I was coming out of an institution where, you know, I've, it's for me, I was doing that professionally coming out of college. And a lot of people, when they come into this, what they don't understand, and I'm going to be really honest with you, is that their lawyers are not really going to tell you everything that you need to do. There's so much going on as it relates to the technicalities of how to put things together, how to call the capital, um, you know, which is something, you know, a little ebook that I'm working on at some point. But, um, you know, ways to do this so that you actually get the money coming in. And that's what we call the buy side part of the business. And anyone who wants to get into doing any sort of syndication needs to understand the buy side, not the sell side. If you do, if you get a CCIM designation, that means that you're a realtor for commercial real estate. You're sell, you are allowed to sell at whatever price. However, buyers are a lot more discerning. And that's a skill set you really have to learn because mm -hmm. once you understand how to value assets, which a lot of people don't, I mean, the legitimate way to do it, then that's the credibility to be able to raise capital. And to be able to start out doing that is to really talk kind of evangelically about it, sort of like uh, a CrossFitter or a vegan, right? And say, hey, I can't believe what's going on here, Mike. This this property would have went for a six cap, you know, two years ago. Now it's an eight cap. You know, now you're starting to have a conversation with these people. And, you know, you're seen as being like the de facto fan, if that makes sense. And, well, it does make sense, you know, for those of us that are that are in commercial real estate. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's one of the reasons why I went from multifamily to hotels. I was like, oh, my God, you know, you look at these cap rates. What can I do? How can I change you know, to make something better. Um, now, in your book, you talk about some of the things that the wealthiest of the investors, that the things that they invest in are not the things that we invest in or, or just stuff that we don't even think about. Mm -hmm. What are some yeah. examples of the things that they invest into that the middle class that, that we don't or never can or will? Well, the hotelier, you know, you'd probably appreciate this. A lot of the wealthy want to get into what we call statement class assets. They have a lot of money already. They're not looking to make money. They're looking to preserve it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. They're not in the wealth creation um, mode that maybe someone who's doing class B to C value added apartment conversions are. And that is a, you know, an entirely different construct to have. So they like to go after what we call statement assets. And that could be mm -hmm. class A real estate usually. Um, you know, develop new, fresh, or, you know, with, with strong sponsors behind it, they gravitate towards name brands that signify experience and life sciences investment. And then mm -hmm. the ultimate too is that they also buy, um, ownership in sports teams. Um, because in the UK, they knight you in the United States, they allow you to buy a sports team and it's a very clubby, um, type of environment. And there's two things, Michael, that wealthy people don't really complain about overpaying for. It's sports teams. And ultra fine art. Think of like Sotheby's and Christie's quality. So we already have, um, you know, dipped our toe into fine art. It's going very, very well. We've been doing that for five years with an art lending fund, which is sort of like hard money against fine art, which is great. And this year we're going to be going into the sports because of the book and the impact that's had with some of the owners and some of the deals we were able to do as a consequence of that. Yeah, it is funny where I've I've gotten into the to the point where I've seen that change in the hotel space where they don't care about the quarterly dividends. They want a seven to 10 year or longer hold period because they don't want the cash. Mm -hmm. You know, they exactly. don't need it. Um, 
what are some of the it's kind of interesting what are kind of some of the legal structures used to do some of these like very large i can tell you that um and if anybody wants to email me this i can i can send you a copy of it um go to sal at hrn.llc but what um, we use is a master series LLC structure because that allows us to invest in the venture and private equity. So let's just say we invested in a company, Michael, okay? And we're, this is the ground floor. That allows us to use basically a single EIN number and it's easy to work with banks, although it does require a lot of banking relationships to pull it off. It's the most efficient for us because we like to go, especially in venture, um, where elephants can't. Mice go where elephants can't, and that's why we're able to get into some of the world-class deals that we had. And we talk about this on the State of the Union that I'd love to show you, and we go through the whole culture and our legal structure, but um, that cost about $250,000 to put together with a brand name law firm, Perkins Coie. But our investors demand that, right? Just like they demand to have um, you know, leading families, um, leading investments into private direct um, venture or private equity companies. Oh, yeah. See, that's amazing. And here we are. It's like, oh, my God, you know, syndication paperwork's cost, you know, 10 to 15,000. Know, and yeah, well, you do it once and then, you know, you can, you know, then after that, you just need a good paralegal. But we we did it once. And, you know, to us, it's very easy for us to say if there's a deal tomorrow that we need to fund, we know that we can have that bank account set up probably in about 48 hours. And that's really what it is. It's 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 what's the structure that's appropriate for you. And they're not that expensive. The whole, the whole thing that's expensive about those, remember, the operating agreements, too. So you have to really make sure that that's really where you're going to get. A, if you're starting out, you, you know, you can everybody can get a master series LLC, but the operating agreement is really what's the most important part. And that's what you pay for and you don't and you don't skimp on. Yeah. I, and I understand. I, I always tell people, you know, there's a couple of industries that you don't skimp on. And when you're getting other people's money, you don't skimp on the legal. No, you don't. You don't. What are what are some of the other things that they're getting into I, i've heard a lot about you know the fintech and the biosciences um you know the biotechnologies are there some other things that they see in the future it it, it it's corollary to what we call their impact statement so if you're a newer family with a lot of technology exits you're going to gravitate towards technology because that's what you know mm -hmm. however if you are a family office that's been around for a while and you're looking for making more of an impact. For example, there's families who we talk to who should say, if this doesn't have fit our 40 year impact plan and don't, we don't want to look at it. And these are third, fourth, fifth generation families. And what it looks like is how am I going to leave the biggest impact to humanity? And this is all about them leaving a mark because immortality is something that must be earned. And we're starting to see this now. Um, you know, a great example, Marilyn Monroe has at the last look, 1.5 million followers on Twitter. She's been dead for over 50 years. Michael Jackson sold more records the day he died than he did at any point, I think, before his career. And, you know, not to be dramatic, but do you think Michael Jordan is going to sell more sneakers or less sneakers after he passes? So this is where everything is going now into perpetuity because there are brands that continue to personal brands that will continue to work. And that's the legacy that people are looking for today, whether it's going up in a rocket ship or it's curing or coming up with a um, sort, sort of therapy or an oncological issue. That is what these these people are looking for, but they're doing it in a way where there's certainty that they're working with the best people they can. And of course, that requires a lot of vetting and 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 that stuff. Now, in your book, do you talk to you know us 
people that are trying to get you know, maybe have started were mid careers or looking to get started on some of the mistakes, you know, to and where can we start in building an investing? That's legacy? a great question. So I think when you're starting like later on in life, what you really want to hone in on is building your salesmanship skills so that you can be able to raise money around experienced people. And, you know, obviously you would capture incentives for that and that's something you need to, to work on. But learning how to raise money for these opportunities is probably the best life skill that you could get coming into this business because mm -hmm. it's going to force you to know what you're talking about. You're going to probably face some uncomfortable questions, but after, you know, a good three months of it, you'll, you'll know, you know, if you're working with the right people or not. And I've seen people do this where they, you know, are ex Wall Street guys and they're like, hey, you know, I got a hell of a Rolodex or maybe not. Maybe you have media or something, but you've attracted people to you. But if you really want to get into real estate, do not go out looking for the deals first. There's always going to be a deal there. You need to go out there and you need to be able to find the investors and talk to them and build an audience and build that media to yourself and keep that mm -hmm. attention. That's the way you get started with this, not by finding a deal. Anyone can find an opportunity. You're just going to spin your tires because nobody's going to give you money, especially in a distressed market. Banks don't lend. Yeah, that that is so true. You know, I, I'm doing a, uh, a mastermind and seminar series on investing in hotels and what it oh, takes. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah. And, you know, the differences with multifamily to hotels, you know, what and all that. And, you know, I like it, Salvatore, where you, you said, people are saying, hey, I found a hotel, now what? I'm like, no. <laughs> no, you're doing it no. ways. Yeah, no, you're doing it to go <laughs> out there, find a bunch of people, find what they want to invest into, and then come around, you know, and find people who will match that. And and a lot of people will tell you, hey, I'm looking for, you know, real estate. I want to get into these deals because I want cash flow. This is what I'm comfortable with. This is what I'm not comfortable with. But you have to start opening the conversation so that you're, you're working with them because remember raising money from people is one of the highest orders of um, sales there is in the land. Mm -hmm. And you, that's something not to be taken lightly. And to your point, you know, we talk about all the money we spend on attorneys. It's not because it's, you know, reflexing cars or anything. It's to show, Hey, this is legitimacy that we put here. There's a lot of brain damage that went into forming these documents. So you show that our interests are aligned, Mr. Investor. Yeah, it, 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 that's so true. And, you know, you should take that as a, a very big responsibility. You are now taking other people's hard earned money and now you're replacing it. And it's it's something that, you know, how can you build that trust? You have to go out there and you have to find the best operators and sponsors you can find, perhaps such as yourself, to put money into because that's going to build trust that you have that you have trust to your own discernment and judgment that you're able to determine what is a real opportunity and what's not. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the other mistakes that you've seen uh, new people make and then seasoned people? It's like I know one of the the mistakes people talk about is they get emotional with an asset. Yeah, they get emotional with asset because asset because there's there's a pride of ownership that exists with this. And I think what people need to really understand is is that if you're looking to if you're looking to generate wealth in real estate, then you need to partner with someone on some on an opportunity where you are just passively going along for the ride raising capital. That's really what it is. You're going to be the business development guy raising capital for these deals. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the, the the legitimate way to do that. What I see other people doing sometimes when they break laws is they're trying to break broker deals with finder's fees and stuff like that. You're going to get hurt. 
don't do it. You know, if you want to go down that route, you know, become a licensed commercial broker if you want. <laughs> However, you know, you have to really understand that. And the other thing too is that um, I have three rules if I can share with you before I get into before we even get into looking at the numbers, but it makes it that much easier. And if I'm investing money as an investment manager and allocator into a commercial real estate deal, hotel, what have you, those three rules are um, ones that I follow and the staff here and the whole team follows. And it's really, it works for venture too, but it's where we change it around a little bit. And the number one thing is that I want to see that the sponsor has an audited track record. A lot of people say they have a great track record, but if it's so good, why wasn't it audited? Number two, I want to see that they have a meaningful equity contribution. For the people who are new in this industry, that's the down payment. 5% is thoughtful, 10% is meaningful. Anything more shows complete conviction. I like it when they're at the 40% down. And then the last one is I want to see them go through at least two economic cycles. So 2008 was one. We're coming into 2023. So I like to see them go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, for that kind of experience and maybe a little gray hair because they have the network, Michael, to navigate out of problems when things happen. And that's really what, you, you know, that's something that the inexperienced, um, you know, investors get into. They overpay for things because they get emotional and they hear people say, you know, if rents continue to go up, you can always overpay. That's toxic. And I don't agree with that. And I think, you know, that's that's caused a lot of people who are a lot of harm to people who you'll see um, in the next six months are not going to be able to be taken out alive. Yeah. And, and raising enough capital to keep the asset for when yeah. these downturns, ha- you know, they're like, OK, here's the 20 percent. And that's all they raise is just a down payment. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, you need to raise the rainy day fund. You need to raise operating capital, capex, operating yeah. capital. Yep. and you know, yes. And, you know, I learned that with my God, you know, hotels and COVID um, oh, know, wow. oh, taught me, you. taught me a lot. And, you know, the, the, the people that are the GPs, when, like you said, when things go, or they only do it when things are smooth, when things are up, what have they really learned? Yeah. Um, I mean, nobody, all things, made equal low state low and low interest rates have made people look a hell of a lot smarter and take a lot more risk than they should have um than otherwise they would have done if this was during any other type of cycle Mm -hmm. we're paying for it now though they are we're not right yeah exactly now you have uh decided to i don't know if you're concentrating in but you you do a large part of your investing in industrial we do. We like it because to us, there's um, basically our, our our families like to have tenants that are richer than they are and better credit. And they've been down this with, you know, with, with multifamily before. Some of them are New York City landlords for many years. But the laws have changed, especially during COVID, where the rights and remedies have gone to the tenant rather than the landlord. So, you know, the inexperienced investor, the middle class investor who's looking to get rich quick, he's going to be gravitated towards 12% maybe that a multifamily would, you know, provide, you know, 12 cap. Let's just call it a 12. When I'm throwing off an eight, they feel like they're ripped off and they don't really understand the risk. You know, who do you want paying your, te- you know, your for your foundation, right? You don't want tenants who are, might not have a job tomorrow, you know, responsible for that. And when you go into that workforce housing, unless it's sponsored by the government, things can get kind of tricky. Yeah, I, I agree. And how was that space during COVID, you know, it's it, it was probably okay because the, the, the trucking industry, all these other things, the warehousing, the 
At first, we didn't know because during COVID, remember, there was, you know, everything was shut down, but there was also these essential services. And thankfully, <laughs> everything that went through there, like carrier air conditioning, you know, those tenants were seen as being um, more, uh, more credit, more, um, I'm sorry, more balanced on the essential services side than being on anything discretionary. So they did well. It was a hundred, it's 100% occupied now. Uh, we underwrote it at a dollar square foot. It clocked in around between a dollar twenty-five and a dollar forty-two. Um, and the last thing I'll tell you about it is that our investors will probably be paid off within a year. Wow, fantastic! Good for you. Thank you, thank you. So you know, it's uh, you know, it's 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 a lot of work, but any you know, I won't say anybody can do it, but if you have a good network and you know what you're doing, you know, you can definitely get to that point. You know, just mm-hmm. give yourself some time to to hustle and grind. What are some of the things that COVID taught you you know like in my space i i was going to buy hotels in in any state but then all of a sudden it's like wow you know not to talk politics or anything but i kind of shifted my ideas on where i would buy into like only what i call free states the ones that didn't shut me down and that's exactly that's that's exactly why we thought money flowed to las vegas that's why we thought a lot of money flowed in miami which is where i am now where we're you know i'm in an area called Brickle. It's beautiful. There's no, you wouldn't notice any sort of real estate depression here because of everybody coming from the blue states. But you want to, yeah, there's, a, there's a migration now. And unfortunately, um, I don't know anyone who's getting ready to roll up their sleeves to buy anything in San Francisco proper right now. Um, that's sort of become a war zone. I haven't been there in a while, but when I was there a year ago in June, it did not look good. Um, and, you know, other parts of the city that are maybe kind of impoverished. There's just no incentives for that right now. So the smart capital, the U.S. will always be a smart place to invest. And there's always going to be risks. And there's always going to be those risks that are going to be priced into the geography, you know, as a function of foreclosure or eviction laws. Mm-hmm. However, there's a lot of money coming into the U.S. because it's still a safe place for rich people to invest. But if you're starting out, find the best operator GP you can in your market and back into that. And, and raise money for those guys. Yeah, very, very good, very good. Now you have a little—I don't know if it's an ebook or a little book that people can download. It's called the Top Ten Mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for the investing legacy, talk a little bit about uh, where they can get this, how they can sign up. Sure. I put together when I was writing the book, I wanted to put together a little PDF of the press to really understand what it is that this book was about. And in order to do that, I um, put together the 10 reasons of how everybody destroys their wealth in one generation. And if you go to investinglegacy.com, you'll be able to get this investinglegacy.com. There's a free download there. And it's a PDF that I wrote myself. But it really gets into sort of the granularities of like what happens and how people lose money very quickly, especially intergenerationally. And that has a lot to do with things that you would never believe happen. But, you know, there's all sorts of people who lost a lot of money, too, by not following smart people and following maybe their college roommate, you know, buddy who played football, who sells, you know, um, insurance for Northwestern Mutual, doesn't really know much about FTX, but he's very evangelical about Bitcoin. You know, these are the things where you have to have sort of like a, a mentality of being a little more streetwise. And I think people have been in the past with some of these asset classes and it forces them to be a little more dispassionate. And that's going to investinglegacy.com. 
Yeah, listen, everyone, investinglegacy.com. What are some of the other, are you advocating, you know, this whole Bitcoin and this whole thing is, um, it's still new. The the younger generations are still, you know, this is the future. Are you seeing legacy investors get into it? No, they're not. Um, A lot of people that have a lot of money are not looking to speculate to build more money. They're looking to put money into other things. You're not going to see Lorraine Jobs, for example, start going into deals that she sees on reddit chat rooms she's looking to make much more of an impact by investing in the same stuff that we've been investing into but you have to understand that it was, it's a very speculative class but it's always the retail and mom and pop investors that pay the price whenever something new comes out and the fact that there wasn't any really regulatory oversight and there was maybe 10 guys at most that controlled you know most of the trades it just doesn't it doesn't seem it seems to be more it seems to have much more social prominence now than it does value and I don't think that it's going to go away. I think the blockchain is going to be around. I don't think it's being shelved. I think it's just something that's going to continue to to advance. The only threat to that, of course, is supercomputers. And, you know, if, if that happens, then, you know, there's other risks out there. Because you have to remember, in certain certain countries like North Korea, they canonize you like a saint if you're able to hack into something. And we're starting to see that. I think we saw that recently with the New York Stock Exchange. We've seen this with some other things. So... People like the asset classes that, and they overpay for asset classes that give them legitimacy, but also as a store of wealth. At what point do you think when, when you're building legacy that you have to all of a sudden look at going from seeking out the cap rates or, you know, seeking out the cash flows to now it's like, okay, now I need to preserve. Now I need to get into something a little more simple, you know, simplified. What do you mean? Simplified. I mean, everybody's going to dis- everybody's at some point, and especially a lot of wealthier families who are more sophisticated, they're just going to maybe sell some real estate or sell something they think is overpriced, go back into it at a later cycle. They're all cycle driven. They're not they're not driven by emotion of having to get that, you know, to, having to get that apartment building or join in that syndication deal. Uh, they are more focused on, um, you know, being a little more thoughtful and meaningful about how they approach that. But the, I mean, they, what, what happens is that when they get older, usually they have people who are like trustees or guys like me sort of managing mm-hmm. that for them, you know, mostly lawyers. Sometimes you get the second or third generation come in and they want to make something bigger out of it. Because remember, nobody ever really, you can't just get out of a venture deal. You have to wait for it to exit. And what happens with that, then it becomes, you know, the planning as far as how that's going to be appropriated for and, you know, what, what, what comes next after that. So. You know, this is we're talking about multi-generational here. We're not talking about, you know, hey, I'm I'm 72 and I want to start selling stuff. It doesn't happen in that way. Um, it's a it's a much different thing. But you just got to make sure that your kids want to do it, because if not, then you have to outsource it. And one of the, you know, you just you just got to make sure and you got to make the dispassionate decision to say, you know, is Tommy Boy able to do this or not? And is he going to be able to? Does he have the grit, determination, and salesmanship to be able to do that? Or is he better off maybe mining Bitcoin? And that's just, you know, it's a function of, you know, how these people, you know, want, want you know, a function of their identity and what they want to do in life. Are they being smart and a little more cautious now, now that there's so much upheaval, you know, with the, the economy, interest rates, the, the, the world economy? Are they being a little more cautious? Are they looking back at like 2007, 2008? Or are you still seeing that there's just a lot of money still being pumped in 
No, a lot of people have slowed down. Um, we haven't seen anything and we haven't done anything in real estate since 2019 because mm-hmm. we knew that things were going to be changing. So they're, they're not doing anything. They were certainly not the last money to buy a lot of multifamily syndications. I can tell you that at least the ones that I've worked with. They are, they are very acutely aware because running a family office is an investment platform. You have to be a professional investor. You have to understand what's going on in the markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of them are thankfully into things that are counter cyclical, such as, you know, earlier stage life sciences, uh, some private equity and, you know, some very well placed real estate with very good leverage and, and terms. So they, they know what they're doing. It's not like they're going out there and just overpaying for something. They're very sophisticated about it and they know an opportunity when they see it. Yeah. You know, I, I go along with that. You know, I, I have so many people say, Hey, you know, I want to get in the next hotel. When, when's the next hotel? I, I, when are you buying the next hotel? I haven't bought any since 2019. I'm like, you know, look, you got to be patient with me. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll tell your listeners one thing on that, on that. And this is something nobody's going to believe me, but I'll just say it right now is that it's going to be a lot easier to raise money for these deals than it is going to be able to find the deal to put it into without having you lose sleep at night. Mm-hmm. Amen. Does that make sense? I mean, you could put, <laughs> I mean, sure, you can find a hotel on LoopNet over, over you know, get, you know, some sort of, <laughs> you know, a, you know, ADR that's ridiculous and made up, but, you know, in a cap rate that doesn't make sense. And, Hey, you know, you bought it. You might not have it long, but you know, you can't afford the staff because you overpaid for it. And we saw that too with a lot of people who went in head first. They were buying land, and if you overpay for land and you want to develop it, you're gonna have to wait a lot, you know, a long time um, for that land to catch up in value. Where your basis is where you're gonna, you know, be able to be cash flowing. It's it's amazing. Bond math does exist for a reason, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Thank you for saying that. Now. What are some of the other things you'd like to talk about as far as the investing legacy? I think one of the things that people should really pay attention to is that if you're raising capital, there's usually five different types of avatars out there or investor characteristics. And I talk about them in the book because a lot of people are never going to be interested in real estate. And it has something to do with their identity. And if you think about it, certain people are just not into real estate. These are people who... Um, might be, you know, what we call the moguls and they're more interested in investing into businesses and getting swinging for the fences and proving how dynamic they are. The providers are the ones that wear the khaki pants. They look like the high school. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, the football coaches on Sunday night, you know, those are the guys that, you know, they like real estate. They understand it. They call it dirt. Um, and that, you know, you show them anything with crypto or venture and then, you know, you're sort of losing status with them. Then you got other ones too we talk about, but it matches their sort of persona. And, and that's really what the wealthy gravitate towards. There's, there's, you know, the female version is the curator too. We talk about this and, you know, she's sort of like, you know, if you've ever watched that show, House of Cards, I can't remember the name, but that's the woman, very powerful alpha. She, her identity is expressed through the art and the foundations that she leads. She's going to be a fine art investor. She's not going to be really, and maybe into life sciences because of the impact. And she likes to drop names. She's not going to be going into 80-20 portfolios <laughs> with Raymond James or, um, you know, investing into, you know, smaller single family homes. For her, the investments, especially for these people, are a um, it's an extension of their identity and their ego. And if you're raising money and you remember that, then you're going to have a much hard, you're going to have a much more um easier time raising capital because you won't be sort of you know doing the shotgun approach and, and see what happens you'll be a lot more targeted and meaningful knowing your customer appropriately that's that's very very true 
Salvatore, it's been a pleasure. Now, everybody, again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Investing Legacy, How the 1% Invest. It's paperback and audiobook. I read it myself. There you go. And it's on Amazon. Pick it up. If you have any questions, reach out. We'll have the show notes. We'll have Salvatore's links. Find him on LinkedIn. Salvatore's been absolutely wonderful. Have a Thank great you, Michael. Day. Thank you, you too, sir. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Richer Geek Podcast, where we're helping others find creative ways to build wealth and financial freedom. For today's show notes, including all the links and resources from our show and more information about our guests, visit us at www.therichergeek.com slash podcast. And don't forget to jump over to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Share with others who could benefit from listening. And leave a rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. I appreciate you, and thanks for listening.